psychedelics are illegal not because a loving government is concerned that you may jump out of a third-story window. Psychedelics are illegal because they dissolve opinion structures and culturally laid down models of behavior and information processing. They open to us the possibility that everything we know is wrong. We don't need new laws that control our consciousness and rigidly place it in a prison. Cognitive liberty. The fact that as adults, if we're not hurting anybody else, we should have the right to explore the contours of our own consciousness without any mediation or legislation on the part of somebody else. Reject authority. Authority is a lie. Information is power, but we have to seize, seize the opportunity. The opportunity. The opportunity. No, your show sounds great. <laughs> well, uh, back yeah. here with renegade historian Thaddeus Russell. Thank you, sir, so much for gracing me with your presence here today, and uh, welcome, welcome back to the show. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about gracing. That's like an aristocratic term. Ah, oh, damn. Only, only kings and queens and lords and dukes grace anyone. I don't grace shit. Mike, come on. Yeah, that's you're gonna you're gonna get me for all my terminology. I know it. It's uh, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just hanging out. I'm uh, just hanging out. I'm, at, I'm, I'm entering the danger zone here. Well, you're you're well. Thanks, man. Thanks for showing up and hanging out. <laughs> Anytime. Totes appreciate. <laughs> that's better. <laughs> so yeah. So look, I mean, I, I I love the fact that your your podcast is taking off and doing well. Unregistered with Thaddeus Russell. It's a, it's an absolutely incredible show. Fantastic intro. You uh, you were talking before about how you're you're getting people to come on your show and say things that they normally wouldn't say, and um, and I, I I absolutely love that. And that's a that's a that's a talent that is is very rare for a lot of people. Almost like a kind of like a psychiatrist or something, kind of digging digging things yeah. out of people, right? Yeah. So yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I was kind of in the middle of answering that um, until I ruined everything. He, we'll keep it real with the people. He, I ruined it once again. Once again, you fucked it up, Mike. Um, <laughs> no, um, yeah. So no, it's a, it's a great question. No one's asked me that question. I love it. So um, you're actually doing really, really well here. <laughs> um, yeah, I um, the so that skill. If it's a skill, I don't know. If it's a skill. I don't know if it's a skill or if it's just um, a manner or a particular curiosity I have. Like I'm always interested in the inner workings of people. Mm. Which, by the way be either seen as, or experienced as sort of um, the empathetic kind shrink who wants to help you or it can be experienced as the uh, intervening busybody know-it-all mm -hmm. who uh, you know who wants to psychoanalyze you in order to manipulate you or dismiss you or something so it can cut either way in other words People don't always appreciate it. Right. Um, I, I think on this show, though, so far, at least as far as I can tell, most of the guests, maybe, I don't know, maybe all the guests, but most of them, and certainly a lot of the audience, I think, has liked it. Mm -hmm. I, certainly, I don't think I've got any negative comments about that. I, the only negative comments I get about the show are about me talking too much, that I, um, <clears throat> that I just talk too much. It's funny because I'm quite sure that I never... 
and then I allow my guests to say everything they want to say. <laughs> you know, the show's long, uh, it's long form. And so it's, it, that, that criticism doesn't really make sense to me, except I think that it's basically, they see like a violation of decorum, you know, like they, they, have this, <laughs> they, have, they have this idea that a host of a show is supposed to just ask questions and then shut up. Right. You know? And that's what's that's what that what that's what reps respectful people do, and I sort of violate that norm. I can't think <laughs> of any other reason why it would be a problem because listen to the show. I mean, the guests get to say everything and more. You know, I don't. I, I certainly talk a lot. It's your show. Uh, it's your show. Well, you know, it's like you should I mean, you I should talk. If no, I mean, if I didn't let them talk or fully express themselves, yeah, then I wouldn't like that either. That's not okay. But yeah, well, you're not, not you're not being Bill O'Reilly. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I am very comfortable. I'm very sure that I do let people say everything they want to say. I um, I listened to that show with you and Camille, and I was like, this is this is what I want to hear. This is what people want to hear because it was like I think maybe two, almost three hours long or something like that. But it was a conversation yeah. back and forth, a challenging, <clears throat> uh, interesting, engaging conversation. You you let him talk, you let you talk. You there's a back and forth. And that's great. I mean, that's 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 the kind of podcast that I I uh, especially like. You know, I I, I yeah, just, me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you know, so my not in terms of content, but in terms in terms of format, my models were Mark Marin mm -hmm. and Joe Rogan. Yep. Ob obviously, the content's really really different. Right. In both cases, and I have major beefs with Mark Marin on all sorts of things. Um, and, and Joe and I are clearly different too. Um, but Marin actually was the original model. I was a big fan of his show before I, before, uh, he had Obama on and I said something about how George Carlin wouldn't probably appreciate that. And he blocked me on Twitter. Oh. <laughs> and ever since then I've, <laughs> I have not been a fan of Marin, but I listened to him religiously. That was kind of like the first podcast I was really into. And I would sort of study it and think about what he was doing. And the thing that he was doing that was really original and that made that show so popular was that he would not just talk to celebrities and comedians about their careers, but about their lives and their personal lives. And he would dig very deeply and ask questions that are not normally asked, uh, personal questions. And then he would weave that kind of into the narrative of their careers. And so that I thought <clears throat> while I was listening to that, God, this would be great. It would be great if there was a show like that, but with people who are political. With yeah. Political yeah, definitely. That's interesting. So and that, yeah. yeah. No, I was just going to say that's interesting because the, the difference between people's careers uh, and, and the difference between their lives, it's like, okay, well, which subject matter are you going to choose as a form of, of communication to identify somebody with? And it's almost as if like, you know, the difference between these, these people that we consider, you know, referring back to your book, uh, the renegades, it's like, let's talk, let's talk more about the lives of these people rather than kind of what we we've seen. I'm just drawing a comparison between identifying people by their careers and then digging deeper between their lives that's very interesting yeah uh you know it's so um in kind of cultural studies terminology this is this is a fundamental part of bourgeois culture which is something that i don't actually talk about even though i talk about bourgeois, bourgeois culture all the time you know that's that's really what my work is in large part is a critique of bourgeois culture right sort of the the norms that became dominant in the 19th century and still are basically dominant, especially in what I call formal culture, the mm -hmm. culture of the 
schools and the governments and the businessmen. Um, Polite society. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I've talked, of course, ad nauseum about the Puritan work ethic and the anti-sex ethic and the nuclear family ethic. And those are all very important. But the other, another important part of bourgeois culture was that this separation of public from private. And so feminist, feminist scholars who get trashed now, or I'd say that what goes on now is that throwing out of the baby with the bathwater when people talk about feminism now, I mean, critics of feminism and they're current critics of current feminism are largely correct. I agree with them on most stuff. I think current feminism is pretty rancid, (laughs) Yeah, but, uh, but it has, but the history of feminism, you know, has given so many things that I think are invaluable and that I use all the time. And this is one of them. So feminist historians are the ones who identified this split in European and American cultures between the public and the private. So they've called it beginning in the 1970s, they identified one as the public sphere and the other as the private sphere. And since they were making a feminist gender critique, they noticed that women were relegated to, or at least inhabited the private sphere. And men we're supposed to be in control of the public sphere. And that seems indisputable, certainly historically. Of course, that's breaking down now. But, mm-hmm. you know, 19th, 19th, well, 19th and early 20th centuries, there's no question about that. So um, it's a really important thing. The thing that the feminists didn't talk about that I do talk about is that the public sphere is, it has always been hyper puritanical. So mm-hmm. you're not, you're not allowed if you're operating in the public sphere, you're not allowed on any level to do the things that my podcast does. Yeah. <laughs> you're not allowed you're not allowed to talk about your sex life, you're not allowed to talk about hating people in, you know, dirty ways, you're not allowed to talk about um, you know, painful moments in your childhood. You're not allowed to talk about your episodes of violence, man. I have I, uh, I interviewed just uh, interviewed P.D. Diabru, who's a comic in New York, mm-hmm. um, and he's just coming up now. I think he has a good chance of becoming a big a big thing pretty soon. But right now, he's doing just doing small clubs, and he's getting a bigger and bigger audience. But yeah, I think I know him. His name sounds very familiar. Yeah, yeah, yeah he knows Dave. Knows Dave Smith. Yeah. Um, but his story, <laughs> we didn't even do a talk about his comedy. We talked for. T- he really talked for two hours and I just let him talk. This was one of those episodes where I didn't, this was the only episode in fact, where I really didn't talk much at all because his story is unbelievable. He um, is born, was born and raised in the Bronx, black Guyanese Caribbean. He's, he's born here, but his parents were uh, West Indians, you know, growing up in the nineties in that neighborhood. Um, man, I mean, it's like the violence, the crime, the sex, the, it's being in, he was in jail when he was 15 years old in an adult jail. He became a major criminal kingpin, um, for a few years was living like the life of Scarface in Miami. And then it all came crashing down and he was living in his car and he was arrested several times. I mean, it's just, (laughs) yeah. It's like no one in my life can relate to this at all. It was one of the amazing things about that interview was, you know, I was thinking, man, I mean, he lives, we, we did the interview on Lori's side. Oh, cool. And I was thinking, I was, no, but I was just thinking, you know, and I used to live in Manhattan and 
I used to, well, I used to live on in Morningside Heights, like just a few miles from the North Bronx. I just thought these are absolutely two different worlds. But my point being here is that PD was talking about stuff that you're not supposed to talk about in public. Certainly, certainly as a, you can talk about it in public now, but you can't talk about it as a public figure, right? So a government official or a businessman or a school teacher, you know, a school teacher would lose their job immediately if they talked about any of this stuff. Um, right. I mean, PD's first sexual experience was with, uh, when he was four, 13, 13 or 14, with um, six guys running a train on a, on a 14 year old girl. And it's funny when he said it, I, I sort of, he said it like, he said, I, my first sexual experience was with a girl on a train. And I said, oh, on the subway? <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway. My uh, God. No, we were running a train. I said, oh, was this consensual? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah. Now, I don't know. But regardless, my point is here that it's just, you know, imagine having a, a career as a public figure and saying that. So the... The, the reason this is the case, I believe, and I guess some other people have argued this too, is that um, it's actually because of democracy. Mm -hmm. Democracy requires that the people be disciplined because, because the people will run the country. And right. To run a country, you have to be you know, self-regulating. Yeah, you know, I, I, I heard that. Yeah. Uh, are you familiar with Slavo, uh, what's his name? Slavo Zizek? Zizek, yeah. Yeah. I, I was hearing him talk about something like that, where he says he doesn't favor democracy oh. because he he says uh, I, he says uh, I don't want to be involved. He has this crazy like Slovenian accent. Oh. I don't I don't want to be involved in the process. I want to play video games. I want to watch TV. I want to really? enjoy arts. Yeah, he was saying about how he he says he stole that from me. Maybe he did. May, I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, you should hit him up. Get him on your show. <laughs> That's um, interesting. I've never because he's sort of he's a lefty. I've never yes. heard any lefty say anything like that. I, he must have stolen it from me. Well, I, it, maybe he considers, I think he considers himself to be a Marxist. Yeah. 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 Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, interesting. Yeah. I will check that out. But yeah, I think that's why. <clears throat> so, you know, the, our rep, our government officials are, are the people. I mean, they actually are, because we do really vote for them, you know, um, and they're not aristocrats and they're not Kings. There's no hereditary monarchy here. And, you know, it, it's, you know, it's, we, yes, I know all of the limitations <laughs> of our democracy, but it's essentially a democracy. I mean, these people come from, from us, you know, and so they have to, if they, if they exhibit like Trump, and this is exactly why Trump freaks people out so much, is mm -hmm. that if they exhibit these things that Trump exhibits, the whole thing's going to fall apart, right? Because if the people are interested in grabbing women by the pussy and, covering their houses in gold and fucking models. <laughs> yeah. Right? <clears throat> and and bragging about themselves, then the whole country's gonna fall apart. Now that's the logic is correct, you know. Um if in fact <laughs> the entire country and all of our leaders were like Donald Trump, then I I would actually be <laughs> much more worried about this phenomenon because it's only Trump and that everybody else in Washington DC is pretty damn puritanical, certainly as public figures. Right. I'm not worried about it. But anyway, that's 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 the argument that yeah. I make about it.
sexless um, so, kind of androgynous like just yeah. well you know what i find very interesting well i found very interesting was when that you you mentioned the grab him by the pussy comment and i just remember that uh you know i think i don't know if it was jake tapper i think it was jake tapper on cnn you know i am absolutely appalled you know i've been in locker rooms before and i have never heard this kind of talk and it, you know it's like you know for me and i and i was doing part of the problem with time dave and you know we're like look man like we there's a lot of people that just see through this absolute bullshit that's being pumped through your stupid puppet mouth on on CNN. I, I just don't understand how anybody believes the public face. Or well, do you think it's do you think it it's the fact that we want to believe that people are that way, so we kind of psychologically accept the lie because we want to pretend that 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 life is this nice thing that we can box up and put into little folders and feel pleasant about. Yeah, so I don't totally agree with you on this. Um, and I've, I've talked about this, I forget, somewhere else. But um, the Tapper, I don't think is, I don't think he's entirely wrong about that. I am a middle-class kid, basically. I mean, I spent a good chunk of my childhood in a pretty working-class, mostly black neighborhood. Um, but, you know, my parents were definitely of the middle class and had middle class values, essentially. I mean, you know, they were middle class bohemians, but they, you know, they came from, they came from East coast, Midwestern white middle class backgrounds. And so that was essentially my, my world. And then, you know, certainly after my childhood, ever, ever since I was 18 or 19 years old, I've been in a totally middle class world in college and in Columbia and New York city and then Los Angeles and, you know, Oregon now, it's all been totally middle class. And I, that's been my experience too. I would say, well, let me say this among, and this, <laughs> if someone were to clip this and put it on the internet, it looks like I'm racist in a, in a way. Um, but among white middle class or no middle class, among middle, it doesn't matter about race among middle class Americans, I think Tapper's right. Like, I never heard much or any of that kind of talk among people around me who were sort of, who were middle class. And that goes for black middle class people and Asian middle class people, um, working class people, you know, and that goes for all races too. Um, but it tends to be disproportionately brown and black people. Um, that kind of language that Trump used on that bus, you trying to tell me that's not normal? Ask PD Diabru. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, I mean, listen to him, listen when he's on my show, you listen to him talk about stuff like sex and gender and women. And it's, an entirely different language and it's it's really basically the language that trump uses and this is one of the reasons by the way no one no one will acknowledge this but trump was very very popular among african americans before he ran for president mm. they they identified with him um in a lot of ways and so now and and do you this, think do you think that's because of his kind of ostentatious behavior like his 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 uh his, you know, he's kind of flamboyant and, and with the gold and the opulence is it, you think it's because of something mm -hmm. like that? Oh yeah. Trump is black. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, totally. Yeah. He's black and gay. Seriously. <laughs> I mean, no, well, really. that's, I mean, that explains the twinks for Trump's Trump. Yeah. No, yeah. He's queer and black. I mean, really, if you look at sort of how blacks and, and gays have both been represented in the popular culture and how in large part they've represented themselves, um, in popular culture, I mean, there's no question that, that Trump is very much of that lineage. So ostentation, putting gold on everything, talking about sex, 
having the hot chick as your as your wife at your side, um, bragging all the time about how great you are, uh, you know, talking about how you're going to do great harm to your enemies. Who is that? That's that's every rapper on the radio. Right. I mean, that's total, totally black working class culture. No doubt about it. Wow. And then and then the same with and then for gays, it's the very similar stuff. I mean, if you go to here, go to a drag show. Go to a drag show tonight or watch. If you can't go to a drag show, what just watch RuPaul's Drag Race. And what do you see? You see tremendous ostentation, self-aggrandizement, um, bragging about oneself, putting other people down, um, self-interest and not taking and never not taking offense at and, and being sort of amoral. In a, in a, to me, a great way. To me, this is all good stuff, by the way. <laughs> um, not taking offense at particular words or slights or put downs of groups. Just not being interested in not not being interested in imposing morality on others um, or policing others morally. And that's Trump. He's he's absolutely a black uh, drag queen. <laughs> that's so funny that you said. That. Oh, so we have that. We actually do. We have the first black president actually right now. <laughs> yes, yeah, I've been saying this for a while. Now. You have oh, been? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, yeah, that's yeah. funny. Yeah. Um, oh sure. I th- um, that wow. No doubt about it. Yeah. Uh, he's he's also similar to sort of. He's similar to a lot of people to the people in my book to the renegades, mm-hmm. and he has a lot a lot in common with them now. Here's the big difference. <laughs> he ran for president right, <laughs> and became the head of state, you know, with all the power <laughs> that that comes with. And he has already killed a lot of people. Yeah. And he's a mass murderer. Um, before he was president, he was pretty damn renegade. And even, even when he was running for president, he was pretty damn renegade because remember, he, I'd say the sort of core idea in the Trump campaign was why should I care? Why should we care about how other people live in the rest of the world? That's their business. That's their problem. Why should we go fight and die in those countries to make them like Americans? You know, what's in it for us? Self-interest is what he was talking about. And no president, no, no politician at any level that I've ever heard of has ever said that in American history. I mean, Ever any American politician in American history has said that? Well, Ron Paul has said that. No, no. Well, yeah. I mean, that particular part of it. Okay, this is true about foreign policy, but there, it, with Trump, it goes deeper than Ron Paul because Ron Paul, he's. I, uh, I mean, I'd say he. There's a moralism about him, though. You know, he does believe firmly that these things are not just sort of good for us in practical terms, meaning we don't kill and die and lose a lot of money. Mm-hmm. He also thinks it's morally wrong to go over there and do those things. Yeah, um, as, as do I, yeah. Well, yeah, I don't. I actually more on... Wait, really? <laughs> on, yeah, I don't make moral... I try not to make moral claims. I think Is that because that, you're a moral relativist? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's cause and effect. You're switching them around there. I mean, it's... I think that... I think that moral claims... Um, are do nothing but damage, do nothing but bad things. From my point of view, according to my values, right. they're anti-intellectual, they are imperialist, they um, they often lead the people to countries invading other countries, 
and um, colonizing them. It's uh, there's nothing good about it, and so I try really hard to keep the morality out of my own thinking. It's hard, and I have to work at it all the time. But I think it's 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 actually what I've been thinking about a lot lately with Charlottesville and yeah. what's been going. And um, Charlotte's two things kind of have come together on, on this for me recently. I've been listening, I've been paying attention a lot to uh, these new atheist guys, Sam Harris, mm -hmm. Dawkins, uh, Sam Harris mostly. But um, and then so <laughs> so Harris's whole thing is religion is wrong because it cannot be scientifically proven to be correct. None of its claims, none of religion's claims can be scientifically proven to be true, right? The scientific method shows that religion is false. All the claims of religion are false, that God does not exist. Okay, that's fine. I'm with that. And then he turns right around and says, the problem with Islam, the problem with Trump, he's a huge anti-Trump person, the problem with SJWs on campus is that they are immoral. And he really leaves it at that. <laughs> he'll say they're unethical, or sometimes he'll say they are deranged or mentally ill. Um, it's either he either psychologizes them or mostly moralizes. And so that, Sam, is not an argument. <laughs> huh. When you say, right? When you say something is unethical, that's, that's actually, guess what that is? That's just faith. That's an article of faith. There's no way to prove that there's a, morality that's good i mean what how can you possibly prove that how does science how, how would the scientific method prove that um prove that murder is good or bad or that incest is good or bad you can't prove it you can just stake your claim on it that's fine but the scientific method does not apply there's no such thing as objective morality in fact i think that's the most ridiculous concept right uh, but that's what he's saying. So it's this very weird thing he does, which is he completely contradicts himself and basically engages in religious thinking, Mr. New Atheist. Yeah, yeah, they do. And, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, a dogma to, to, to that kind of... Um, uh, yeah. yeah. Does that yeah. make sense, though? Like, so he'll say things... Just listen in for five minutes, I swear. I promise you he'll say something is unethical or immoral about ten times. And... It's completely unselfconscious about it, and he acts as if that's an argument. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Trump is just immoral. I just I, he's just despicable and immoral. It's like, well, yeah, okay, great. So how do you <laughs> how can you prove that? Um, now the thing is, the other thing about this is that Sam Harris is operating totally uh, unconsciously within a very particular culture, which has its own morality. Right. He's operating within, you know, the United States of America, 21st century, upper middle class, bi-coastal, Los Angeles, you know, liberal culture. That's very much who he is. Mm -hmm. And it has its own very firm morality. And so he just assumes that's correct. All those norms, all those ideas, all those beliefs, it's just right, you know? And so he doesn't need to make an argument. <laughs> he just knows he's right. And so, you know, when it comes to Islam, he'll say things like, well, those people over there, they are absolutely unethical in the Middle East, and there's no reasoning with them. They're just unethical. <laughs> right. So yeah, that's, kill, that's, kill that's, that's the, uh, 
Yeah, that's that's yeah. the old kind of uh, the old chestnut of we got to go and uh, discipline these savages because they're all backwards and we got to show them how to be right. Well, yeah, except that no, no, it's not. This is different. You have to annihilate them. Oh, okay, totally wipe them out because they don't deserve to exist because they're unethical and immoral. Not he wouldn't say that. I don't think he would say that you can't change them. So there's nothing we can do but kill them because otherwise they will kill us. Okay. That, that is precisely his argument. I'm sure he wouldn't disagree with me on that. That mm. that's his argument. That, that's that, that's the logic of it, right? So if um if you are if you are an immoral person, and by the way, all this is derived, all this kind of thinking is completely derived from Christianity. If you are an immoral person, who does that associate you with? Oh, are you talking? Are you asking me a question? Yeah, the devil. Oh right, yeah, yeah. Okay, sure. So yeah, you're, you're mean, satanical. So you yeah. This, yeah, so you can see this in all the discussion about Trump, right? There's no, he's there's nothing he can say or do to redeem himself at all. If you say one positive, not even positive thing, if you if you refuse, and this is this is what happens to me. If you refuse to denounce him as a white supremacist Nazi, you are actually consorting with the devil. Mm. This is, uh, you know, I get this all the time. Sure, of course. Yeah, I got this during the election when I would when I would smash Hillary Clinton about things. People would automatically assume that I must be in favor of Donald Trump. Yeah, because morality is black and white. It's good and evil. There's nothing in between. That's one of its problems. It's a binary system always. Right, yeah. Um, I, I, I really do get that because I, I, I think you are a man of nuance and gray. And I think that that's – and that's why I like you so much because that's that – it, it's it's – it's difficult to be that person. It's difficult to juggle and live in the mystery and live in the wonder and kind of move forward and always continuously ask questions. And I think that a lot of people just want to shut their brains off. They do just want straight answers. But, uh, yeah. but, but like that, 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 that more, that morality, that, that thing, that black and white, that can't be the case because like, for example, with abortion, uh, you know, I think that there's a lot of th- this is a such a big thing for people. And it's like, well, if you're, if you're pro-life, then you're evil. If you, or if you're if you're if you're not, you're evil too. So it's like, well, what? Like, why can't there be a middle ground? You know, I was just recently reading this book called Society Against the State, and I was talking about, um, you know, the the the, the indigenous kinds of cultures uh, of the past, the hunter gatherer types of tribes and societies where they would have someone like a chief, and the chief was basically a person that they would appeal to for tough decisions and wisdom. And I think that 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 aspect of our culture has has been lost to some, at, at, to some degree that there's no gray area there's no like okay well yeah we can murder uh, an unborn child but it's still murdering an unborn child but we're still going to do it anyway because that's what we're going to do <laughs> is that moral yeah. is that right is that bad is that wrong you know yeah america yeah i think yes it's lazy that's the other problem with it it's mm. um it's just a shortcut it makes you don't have to read anything you don't have to study anything you don't have to know anything yeah you can, you're just you're just informed that so and so is bad or evil, and then you just go your and you just continue to, to denounce them. I mean, this is also in my life. You know, I've, I've written about slavery um, <clears throat> in ways that are um, unexpected and new and highly unusual and cut against the dominant narrative of American slavery. And it's you know, if you read it for two seconds, you'll see that I am not only completely anti-slavery, I'm and not only not just anti-racist i am if anything pro-black uh-huh. and anti-white <laughs> um 
it doesn't matter because if I if you veer from the, the good narrative, which is the dominant narrative, um, you you just have the whole thing's bad. The whole the whole apple is rotten, and right. so you can't say anything. I mean, it, it, either I have to pres- either you have to give me five hours in which I deliver a, an ex- a lecture to you with all of the citations, all of the examples, all of the evidence and frame it in exactly the right way so that you know I'm a good guy. Um, I can't really say anything about my work on slavery in public without being told that I'm a racist, or at least being implied that I'm a racist. Sure, of course, yeah. If you you veer from the good in any way, you're with the devil. And that's the way Americans think. So Charlottesville, this is what's going on now. Um, The... (laughs) And it's really, it's in this case, it's just especially ridiculous because um, the whatever the guy, whatever the people, whoever they were who were protesting the taking down of the the Robert E. Lee statue, you know, um, well, I happen to know that many of them are white separatists, like Richard Spencer and those guys. That's Mm -hmm. what he's about. People don't know this. They don't know this. They think he wants to kill black people. He doesn't. He wants to get out. He wants to leave America. He wants to take all the white racists with him and go have their own white, white nation state. Yeah, he's a national socialist. Yeah, no, but he doesn't, he's not interested in resegregating the United States. He's not interested in imposing slavery. He's not interested in doing anything to black people. He just wants to leave. Yeah, (laughs) right. And so it's like, you know, when I heard him say that, I was thinking, why are then why aren't we just like giving this guy money and, you know, <laughs> giving him Wyoming or whatever he wants and saying, please take all your friends and go live there. We'll leave you alone. Why is he considered a threat when he wants to leave? This is what people say, though. You know, oh, well, he's they conflate him with every worst person ever in history. And they're all the same. He's they're Hitler. They're the Ku Klux Klan who, you know, lynched black people. And but that's actually not true. So in the nuance, it's not just nuance in this case, it's actually important. So if Richard Spencer were actually thinking about or planning attacks on people, physical attacks, then fuck yeah, I'd be down there too, marching and beating the shit out of him in the streets, you know? I'm sure. all about it. Me too, and I would be, I'd be right actually, there as well, yeah. But it's actually just not even true, because, and all you gotta do is just spend five minutes researching the guy. You know, and you'll find this out. And then the rest of the people there, I mean, there were probably five or 10 actual Nazis. Now, are they really, really going to, are they really Nazis? You know what I mean? Like Nazis were actually planning to take control of the state and they actually did that. They formed the party. They always had long-term goals and plans for exact precisely what they would do with the state once they had that power. Really, are these guys down there planning to seize control of this the american state first of all if they did if this was their plan good luck <laughs> they're about at least five centuries away from being even remotely close to that as a possibility um and secondly um i don't think so i think they're basically larpers right what, what's that called the uh, live action role-playing the guys who like yeah yeah These guys down there are larpers these new yes. confederate neo-nazis down there that's all they're doing they're dressing it now i'm not saying there's nothing political i'm not saying they're not racist i mean obviously they're fucking racist because they you know said things that are sure by anybody's standard racist sure no doubt about it they're making racist statements for sure they're making a point that is in some part at least in large part racist 
but they're just these are the most powerless people on earth. They really are. Yeah, they really and, are. There's a it's they're an extremely small minority. And even if they had some power, it's not at all clear to me that they would do anything with that power that would be harmful to anyone. Um, maybe, but I don't see that. But mostly, they're just they're completely powerless. And then the people who are the, the actual numerate the neo Nazis also there's like ten of them in this country. I mean, they're really that is almost non-existent. The Ku Klux Klan basically doesn't exist. The yeah. Spencerite, that's a real thing. I don't think it's big at all, and they certainly have no power either. But you know. It looks like it's in the thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of people who would call themselves Richard Spencer followers. Yeah. That's a a thing. But look at what they actually want. They want to leave. It's like, oh, the white racists want to leave the United States. Well, why shouldn't we celebrate and help them? (laughs) You know, instead, they're the devil and they have to be destroyed, annihilated. Yeah. They have to be annihilated. There's no discussion. So it's, it's it's a kind of thinking that I think if you're going to do politics, this is the problem I have with American political culture is that it's 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 all a morality play it's always a morality play charlottesville is a great example it's always a morality play in which there are about just a handful of actors right because very few americans do this stuff or care about this stuff there's like a handful of people on this very small stage but it's in front of this massive audience of hundreds of millions of people who are all watching this closely and that's it it's like there's good and evil on stage and then we all watch it and cheer on one side or the other and want to kill the other side. We need the end of the play to be the death of the villain. And that's it. It's so simple-minded, and it does so much damage to understanding, to nuance, to human beings, to the sovereignty of other countries, to the autonomy of individuals, to the idea of um, self-determination and agency. You know, it's just. Uh, it's a, it's a bad way to go, and it's almost all Americans, even very very smart, educated Americans, and, indulge in it. Yeah, and you, and you mentioned you know before it's like you know it's like people just they don't want to read, they don't want to know anything, they don't want to take the time to understand. And you know, do you think? And I know that um, you know you got Renegade University out there, and and you're you know you've been active and vocal about uh, the education system here in America. I mean, do you think this is a deliberate kind of as uh, John Taylor Gatto would say, like a dumbing down, an uh, intentional kind of dumbing down of people with the public school system so so they uh you know just are not informed or they don't care about this kind of stuff um i mean i don't think it's intentional i don't think i don't think public schools intentionally dumbed down the students the the children in america i think they have dumbed down american school children and the culture generally but it's it's that the schools were always intended to serve a particular function, which was to produce good citizens and good workers, not good intellectuals. Gotcha. Not 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 intelligent political actors. Obedient workers, uh, not thinkers. Now this is, I mean, you know, if you're listening and don't believe me, just go. You, after about ten minutes of googling, you will see that the evidence is just overwhelming that this was the case. I mean, you have the founders of the public education system in this country saying over and over again for about 100 years, (laughs) we need to create good factory workers. We need to create people who are willing to be soldiers. We need people who will obey the law. We need people who will not question authority, but will obey authority. And the good ones, we should train them to be authority. I mean, they were straight up about this. After World War II, they stopped talking about that. They stopped saying that stuff, but for a good hundred years, the founders of American public education were saying this over and over again. So 
So that does not create good intellectuals. The other, the other cause of this moralism, I think, is that it's a deeper thing in American culture generally, and a lot of historians have written about this, which is that America has always been more moralistic uh, than other countries in its culture. So, hey, are you uh like rubbing a paper or something? It's getting sorry. Uh, yeah, I was. Yeah, sorry. Okay. Yeah. Um. Coming through. Yeah. Um. So it's America's been a very Christian country. It's arguably the most Christian country. So there's until very recently, it just had a it had you know one of the highest rates of church attendance, church membership in all of the Western world, and and more importantly, you just see sort of this Christian kind of thinking infused in everything, including all forms of politics, right. including left-wing politics. And this is, this is, again, a thing that sort of marks off the American left from other left-wing groups and movements in other countries. The American left in this country has always been basically Christian, even either explicitly um, or just in the way they talk about issues and the way that they um they think about politics mm -hmm. and act on politics so it's there's always a martyr figure there's always a jesus you know someone's got to get up and die and so we got that this last weekend um martin luther king jesus christ figure cesar chavez he used to starve himself deliberately did hunger strikes um you have all these during the labor, the big labor uprisings in the 1930s, the communist uprisings, you would have like the one or two organizers or activists who would get shot by the cops or the Pinkertons, and they would become the symbol of the movement, the dead one, the martyr, Jesus figure. And then you have good and evil. You had the workers were good and the capitalists were evil, or the the black people were good and the whites in the South were evil, and um, you you celebrate. <clears throat> You valorize austerity, simple living, the, the, the denial of pleasure in the body. Puritanism, you know, asceticism has always been central in left-wing politics and right-wing politics, too. But I think even more so in left-wing politics. Oh, interesting. It's a, complete, yeah. it's a completely Christian movement from top to bottom. It's just it's Christianity without the God. Mm. Although it, I would say it's godless. God, that's that's dangerous well, if it's godless, well, right? They, yeah. <laughs> What they did was they replaced God with the state or the community. So okay. We, we I thought you, I thought for a second you were going to say science. Um, that's that's the subset, but not that's not really what's going on here. It's the you know the Bible says sacrifice yourself for God, sacrifice your body, literally. That's what they said, meaning you know give up worldly pleasures, right? Give up the the desires of the flesh for God for God's community. And so the American left, socialists, liberals, communists, anarchists, all of them for hundreds of years have said, do the same thing, but do it to build the, a good community, you know, usually through the state. But uh, sacrifice your individual desires and freedom for a, for a socialist utopia, for the state, for a new, a new world. And it's all completely Christian. Right. Yeah. That's interesting because doesn't the, I mean, the, most people I think would, would associate Christian conservatives on the right to be that way as well. So, uh, you know, there seems to be some, yeah. some, some similarities there, um, where, you know, like 
the it's it's actually interesting because you know like my my parents are for example are democrats on the left however they exhibit very conservative behaviors you know they're church avid churchgoers i would say that they would be conservative democrats you know mm-hmm. which is which is not something that you really hear about anymore um so yeah. much right um i'd say even um even most like hipsters in brooklyn are essentially this way too. Mm. I mean, sure, sure, they care about their artisanal coffee, yeah. um, which is which is a form of you know bodily pleasure. Um, but they also think that excess is terrible. They think right. They think that um, simplicity is good. Generally speaking, they want the simplicity to be nice, <laughs> but they don't want what Trump does, which is have more than you need. It's uh, indulgence. It's excess. It shows that you care more about yourself than the world around you and the broader community. It's a selfishness. It exhibits selfishness. So the hipsters always, all of their, you know this, all of yeah, their, yeah. All, their, all their coffee bars and their craft brew houses and awesome little restaurants in Williamsburg almost always show you in some way or another that they really care that this this little business enterprise really is going to serve the community in some way or another it's going to be green they're going to recycle their products they're locally sourced you know yeah they, but they uh, yeah they all have but they they, they all they all have apple iphones and they all wear you know nike or adidas boosts and nike shoes and they and they all are obsessed with popular huh? culture yeah you know why because Christianity fucking sucks, man. It's hard to live that way. <laughs> Asceticism is hard. Yeah. It's really, really hard. Very few people have been able to pull it off for their entire lives. And those people are monks. Right. Uh, and even a lot of monks end up walking down the hill and <laughs> going into the village and <laughs> getting a beer. Sure. Um, yeah. Well, actually, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, I, t- I do talk about spirituality, uh, you know, on this show and, uh, you know, obviously psychedelics and, and what that can do for you. And I think there's there's often a lot of thinking, I think, within that community that if you just kind of, you know, you're a spiritual being and, you know, you're just, you're just, you're, you're, you don't, you don't care about material things and, you know, that, that kind of degree, but what, what value does somebody have that kind of detaches themselves from society? I mean, that they're not really contributing to, to, to society to, to add anything to, uh, um, you know, to life for themselves, not not for the broader uh, good of society, but to themselves. Why why leave and be a, an ascetic? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I know the logic doesn't work entirely. I mean, again, it's it's a it's a spiritual idea, right? So that means that it doesn't apply to the real world. I mean, you know, it, it doesn't make any sense in the real world being a monk or um. Uh, in engaging in fair trade uh, practices with your coffee suppliers in Guatemala. It, it actually doesn't make, make any difference at all in the real world, but it makes you feel better, right? Yeah. It makes you think, it makes you think that you're doing God's work in both cases. Whether you're living in a monastery or engaging in all these stupid practices that you, you know, at Whole Foods you see or all these, all these cool yuppie places, um, right. all, all these things that they're doing, they don't actually mean much of anything. But that doesn't matter. It, what matters is it makes us feel like we're doing God's work. Mm. And in a sense, we are because, yes, it is probably more work in some way. There is some sacrifice in 
recycling every all your plates or locally sourcing all of your ingredients <laughs> or paying your oh, or paying your workers more than the minimum wage which some people do voluntarily and i'm not saying that's you know bad to do i'm just saying generally speaking it has very little or no effect on the real world but it just makes you feel better definitely i i agree with that because i think i have fallen into that trap myself and i think it's along the path of kind of what i would call and I'm air quoting, discovering truth is, you know, I think oftentimes where most people are looking for some kind of ultimate truth or some kind of massive revolutionary idea that we can, you know, this is the thing and we're going to get behind this cause. But oftentimes I think what happens is they get sort of kind of co-opted and commercialized into these ideas that get packaged up and sold back to us. And then it just kind of makes us feel good, right? Like it makes us feel like, Ooh, we're doing good, but we're not really doing good, (laughs) but we think we are. You know, you, you bringing up psychedelics. Yeah. I've never talked about this either, but I've thought about this too in this way. Oh, um, yes. I'm going to get you to admit some, talk okay. about something you haven't talked about. Nice. Yeah. Um, I'm pulling a thad. Although you might not like this, though. <laughs> it's cool. <laughs> we can talk. Yeah. I'm not opposed to psychedelics at all. It, you know, it's, it's the reason hmm, the reason I'm not turned on by it. And when I say it, I mean the culture of psychedelic drugs, not just doing the drugs. But sure. You know what I mean? Yeah, and that's kind of what you're talking about here, right? There's right, a culture right. yes. that comes with this stuff. Yeah, there's there's a particular type of person, or at least a, there's a culture that's associated with psychedelics and a very different culture associated with speed, coke, meth, Very and a, yet, a, yet again, another very different culture associated with drinking and another one associated with weed, right? Each mm-hmm. one, each drug or set of drugs has its own culture. Okay, so the reason I am, I think I like, I'm less attracted to psychedelics um, is that it tends to be the culture tends to be this. It tends to be sort of intellectual in this way that it sort of, it values the mind over the body, meaning that what I hear people saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not that familiar with it, but I've been around, I've been around plenty of people in it. Um, They tend to say that, wow, what happens here? is that you learn new things about yourself and the world and you live and you learn. It's kind of what you're just saying now. You learned to be a more spiritual person. Spiritual means detached from the body. That's what that means. The spirit is outside of the body, whether it's your spirit or it's God, it's outside the body. It's asceticism completely. Um, and it's um, now, I'm not opposed to that if that's true, you know, and I do that too. Of course, this is what I do. I study myself. I study the world. I'm all about it, you know, sure. But what they never talk about or rarely talk about, I don't think I've ever heard any of them talk about this, is it being, I should say, they downplay this, that it, how fun it is <laughs> to do to do psilocybin or LSD or these new, these new crazy um, D- DMT, yeah. Yeah, that I'm only vaguely aware of because of certain podcasts I go on. Whew, um, you got to try some. <laughs> yeah, but the way yeah, so the way those things are talked about in particular, it's not they don't talk about them being fun. In fact, what what's the one that makes you just sick and it's ayahuasca? Yeah, ayahuasca. Right, everybody's trying to get me to do ayahuasca, and, and all they have to say is, "Yeah, it's really really hard, man." And it's like you're gonna really struggle with it. It's like. That's only it's, one version of the thing. But you're I, gonna, yeah, you're going to learn so much. You're going to change so much. <laughs> so when I did psilocybin, 
the um, first hour was don't, awesome. Don't be so bourgeois we were... about it. It's magic mushrooms. <laughs> oh, <kidding>. yeah. <laughs> right. I was being scientific. Right? <laughs> uh, it was awesome because it was just fun. We just laughed constantly. Just it was just we just laughed. Yeah, it was just pure childlike fun. Yes, for an hour, and then, then the great implosion happened. So something happened inside of me. I think I took too much. It was the first time, and just my brain just started to look inside. It felt like my brain was sort of looking inside or trying to look inside of itself, inside of itself, inside of itself, and it was that kind of ultra introspectiveness um, that made me miserable <laughs> for seven hours but i can imagine if it didn't make me miserable i could see it you know i could see coming away from that in my little 19 year old self thinking wow man that was really enlightening or but it wasn't fun it didn't feel good it felt terrible oh why so, why how come that felt terrible well yeah i mean that's I'm, that's just my psychological makeup i'm sure it just didn't you know for whatever reason my psychological makeup interacts with psilocybin in a way that makes me feel bad oh okay but but i'm saying that that generally, am I wrong about this? That people of the psychedelic culture talk about the drugs in that way? That their benefits tend to be more intellectual and spiritual than physical and uh, sensual? Yeah, for sure. And I hate that. Uh, I, I'm, oh, okay. I'm, the, I'm the opposite. I, 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 okay. I, I really kind of reject this culture of, you know, like th this new psychedelic culture, which is being uh being pushed out by these scientific organizations that are studying it and trying seeking federal uh, approval and you know I, I think there's something to it you know there's something to it because it's kind of like a, a foot in like a, there's a you know it's like putting a, a, our best foot forward to kind of comply and go with the rules but I am very much of the school of like uh, Terrence McKenna if you're familiar with him or, or Timothy Leary of uh you know of, of these things should be you know when I take psychedelics I feel very much in my body I feel very much like an animal I feel very like you know primal I I, I get to this and I you know I, I, this is actually a good segue because I wanted to talk a little bit about this, uh, uh, I guess, objective truth or, um, you know, objectivism. And it's like the, there's, there is this kind of truth that I find inside of myself by having this direct experience and being more inside of my, my own being that is fun. And it, and like you said, it's it's fun and it's kind of like a fuck you and it's it's disobedient and you know that's that's what what I think it should all be about. And so you know, and then I gather sort of kind of truths from the experience that I had that that help inform me in in my life. You know, that help me live a better life, a happier life. And I think that um, there are a lot of people that can get lost in that, can get trapped in that, but. Uh, but yeah, and there there is this feeling that you get that gives you, and I you know because I do them quite frequently, so it's like you know it's it's definitely a very primal feeling of I am I am not a man, I am not I am not Mike Brancatelli, I am not a man, I am not anything, I am this kind of primal oneness that I feel I you know I'm a, a human being, uh, or I or I am or I'm at least having a human experience. Hmm. Um. Yeah, so that that sounds more like my experience with MDMA, mm -hmm. which which uh, I did in college, and which I think should be required in the schools. Yeah, yeah, mandated for all children. It's it's uh, fun. It's very fun. 
annually. I don't know. I mean, do you consider that a psychedelic? Yeah, they they categorize it as one. I don't necessarily consider it as one. I think it may maybe it's an entheogen. I'm not really quite sure, but it it makes you really super happy. Releases a ton of serotonin, mm-hmm. and it's amazing to have sex on. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> It's funny. I didn't actually think it was that sexual. I thought it was very sensual. I didn't want to have sex. I was, but I was really into people's bodies in mm-hmm. a different way, touching people's bodies. But I wasn't sexual, which was uh, novel <laughs> for me. Yeah, and I liked that. I really so um, I felt great, and I felt connected to people in sort of just a very primal, physical, and emotional way. Um, and I learned from that. So I, I agree with or my my experience with MDMA sounds like how you describe your experience with psychedelics, I guess. The way I learned from it, the way it improved my life was I could see a, simply a different way to live. Yeah, it wasn't. I don't think it's the truth. I don't think it's truer than any other way of living. It's just an alternative that I wasn't aware of. Would you can live differently? Would you call it? Yeah. Would you call it your version of the truth, or or? No, so yeah, truth is just. Uh, you don't want to get it messed very, up with truth. Very bad. Yeah, just a very bad road to go. You just don't need to do that at all. There's no need for that whatsoever to make a truth claim. And again, it just does nothing but bad things if you do. I think same. It's, it's a moral. It's a moral claim. Also, if you're just talking about your own truth, you know, people talk about my truth fine but that's that's not the actual meaning of truth truth is an absolute universal claim meaning that what you found inside yourself mike when you did psychedelics applies to other people you're basically making a claim for other people now if you're not making a claim for other people that you're just saying it's just in me fine that's not then i got no beef with it it's just that's not actually the word truth means that's that's definitely what i try and do on this show you know i'm not i'm not an academic i'm a comedian and i'm just like you know just (laughs) a guy who's interested in psychedelics and i'm curious i'm curious Mm -hmm. about a lot of things so a lot of times i share my experiences as as, you know in the context of this is my experience if you if you can relate to it cool if not this is my experience this is there's no absolute truth or not anything like that yeah that's 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 what that's my politics right there what you just said yeah um it um, and also I would say that you know I'm sure you'd, I'm sure you would agree with this. Your experience on a drug is going to be different than all other people's experience on the same drug. Now there might be some there might be some similarities, but what happens in you during um, when you're on the drug is going to be somewhat. It's going to be a unique experience, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. But I would say that there is, I, I, I would say that there is one common thread and that common thread is that feeling of connectedness to everyone and everything and that feeling of unity of being kind of the same sort of life force as everybody else. There's, there's this kind of, the, most people that take psychedelics do report that. And I think that's why they're, they tend to have an increase in creativity and openness and, um, you know, uh, love and empathy as well. Yeah, sure. Okay, fine. Reluctantly agree. Okay, I'll take it. <laughs> that, feeling of, that feeling of connectedness, you know, also, I'm sure, is interpreted in infinite ways, right? That, 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 that your connectedness is going to be a little bit different than the other person's connectedness. Sure, yeah, right. Thing. Anyway, it, I don't, we don't need to belabor this, but... Um, it's, um, so, oh, so I was just going to say, you know, I completely see this though, that you can find simply a different way of living that might be better for you by doing these drugs. Sure. A different way, a different way of relating to people 
a different way of um, being inside of your own body, a different way of relating to yourself and your own body, a different way of expressing yourself, a different way of dressing, a different way of talking, a different way of, you know, different values. You might think during a trip that you don't think working at the Wall Street hedge fund is any longer good for you, or you might think that being a teacher in a public school in Harlem is no longer doing God's work and you'd rather be a sandal maker in Honduras or something, right? That happens all the time too. And so I completely see that as being really valuable and um, yeah, great. And so, but for me, it was just this, it's the most important thing was actually the emotional the emotional, the emotional alternatives that were presented to me when I was on MDMA, I thought, oh, wow, I can actually walk through this life without being angry or scared or anxious about the future. It is possible to, to do that, to live in the moment, as we say, which is actually, I think, a very valuable thing. Yes. Um, and um, I didn't know it. I didn't know it until I was doing that drug. I didn't know that that was a possibility. So, yeah, yeah, that's... um. That's love, amazing. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I love that part of psychedelics. Absolutely. That's what. Just, that's the answer yeah. that Anthony Bourdain gave. Oh, did he? Yeah, mm -hmm. he he said that basically. He's like, he's like, look, like I don't know about some universal truth or something like that, but it, I know that it changed my perspective, and and, mm -hmm. and it can change your perspective. And you just brought up an interesting. I mean, it's like essentially, would you say that you were presented with the ability to know that you actually have a choice about how you want to live? Like, you actually have choices. Yeah. 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 Yeah, the, doing that drug was the first time I realized I had a choice of feeling differently, uh, that I could actually choose to feel differently. Yes. Um, unfortunately, I didn't have, I forgot about it <laughs> until about five years ago. So that's about 30 years there, um, in which during the 30 years, I basically, it never even occurred to me that I could feel differently than I was. So I had tremendous anxiety. I had panic attacks. I had terrible insomnia. Um, that was my thing. And I would just suffer through it. And I would just wait for it to be over with. I would just wait and wait and wait and just, just assume that I had to just get through it. And I, you know, I, I would always think, oh, well, once I finish my school or I get a job or I finish the book or whatever it was, you know, then I'll no longer be anxious. But it was always, I never thought that in that moment when I was lying in bed, staring at the ceiling at four in the morning, not able to sleep, thinking that the world was going to cave in the next day and that I was a terrible person and that my life was going to be over soon. I never, it never even occurred to me that I could change the way I felt in that moment. That I, that feeling seemed to me to be inevitable and necessary and something I just had to endure. Um, and then five years ago, I did start doing therapy called dialectical behavioral therapy, mm -hmm. DBT. Um, and that was the first thing they told me was, you know, you don't have to, there are things you can do that are pretty simple to just not feel that way in those moments. You can feel, you can feel differently in those moments. That in itself was revelatory. And then they just started giving me really simple cognitive tools that I could teach you in like five minutes that if you apply them and actually use them and work them, they can do that. You will, you will no longer feel that way. You can change the way you feel in the moment. But I do think I'm sure that a lot of drugs will give you that same, that same possibility, that same alternative alternative. Um, so, uh, yeah, I endorse it. 
Yeah, I think that, you know, that's amazing. And I've heard you talk about, um, obviously, I think your your Rogan appearance had a little, there was a section in there that got kind of, you know, uh, a lot of people talking. And I think you alluded to the fact, or not, not alluded, but basically asserted that, look, you you can make a choice. Like this is, you you can choose your identity. And I think- oh, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think that um, this comes from, I think, a, a difference in visions. I know Thomas Sowell wrote a book, uh, Conflict of Visions. And, you know, he, he says that, you know, people on the left are, have a tendency to be, have these visions of the unconstrained man, you know, that, that the possibilities are endless, that we're malleable, infinitely malleable, that we can choose who we want to be in this world and, and we can make it so. Uh, and then the constrained vision, which would be, I guess, the more conservative vision is that, no, man is flawed. You know, there we're not this moldable clay. We have to, you know, impose limits to ourselves because we're dangerous and, you know, we're, life is cruel, brutish, and short, and we're all going to die if we don't adhere to these constrained visions. Wow. You know, so soul, I don't know about this, soul associates the unconstrained man with the left? Yes. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, that's, that's completely opposite, right? I mean, to me, well, I would say certainly many conservatives, many people on the right are all about constraints too, but Jesus Christ, certainly these days, I mean, who's trying to constrain whose uh, freedom? I mean, it's, it's people on the left, but it doesn't, I don't really need to go down that road too far again, but, yeah. um, but, uh, what was I going to say? Yes. About identity. Yeah, that's true. I, I wasn't thinking about identity. I was just thinking about just, you know, your mental health generally. But sure, this applies to identity as well. You, yes, you can fucking be whatever you want to be. And how do I know that? Well, look at history. Right. You know, look at history. Look at the way people identify now. Look at, go walk down the street in New York City right now and look at the first 100 people you look at. And then look at the same street 20 or 30 or 50 or 100 years ago. They look completely different. They're dressed differently. Some of them look kind of like men. Some kind of look like women, but kind of not. Some of them are in between. I mean, whereas 50 years ago, the gender binary was really, really firm. And it's, it was very hard to see anyone who didn't um, look like every other man. Uh, and, you know, this is, the, his, this is gay history, right? Gay History 101 shows you this. And you just look at pictures. You can look at like the faggiest men in the world in the 1950s looked like the president of the United States <laughs> because they... They had to. Because they were they repressed, to. yeah. Yeah, yeah, they had to. I mean, they to, to literally saved their own lives, their own careers, their own mental health. I mean, and often they were married and often they had children. My uncle was one of them, by the way. I mean, he was, you know, he was the gayest person you will ever meet in your life. And, but he was married for 30 years and had three children and didn't come out until he was, until he was 45. And if you looked at him, I mean, he looked like everyone else. Um, now he talked with a lisp and everyone knew he was gay because of that. Right. But but in the earlier, you know, in the earlier generation, they would they would uh, restrain their lisps. It was a big thing. And the gay organizations in the 50s had rules not allowing men with lisps into their organizations because because it would discredit homosexuality. So, um, they all looked they all sounded all the same. And my point being is that genders not genders, identities of all kinds have shifted all over the place in all sorts of ways just over the last 10 or 20 years and certainly historically radically shifted. So the people have proven that you can choose your identity. Sure, of and, course. Yeah. 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 
There's no doubt about and, it. And it's constantly shifting, ever-changing. I mean, where are we going to be in 20 years from now when we have half cyborg people walking down the street saying, I identify as a robot, I identify as a cyborg. No, you're not. You're, you're a human being. Yeah. Well, you know, it's so, like... <laughs> yeah, these people, the, these, the Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson, these guys, mm-hmm. the, this is, they're infuriating. And this is one of the ways in which they're infuriating. They pretend to be, well, they, they are actually liberals in a sense, but... Their whole thing is, you know, well, it's just biologically a fact that there are men and women, and that, you know, that's what the, that's what it is, and that that's what got me into trouble on Rogan when he asked me if I was born a man, and I said no. Um, right, I and that and that and that that's that's exactly why I asked yeah. you that now because I, I I related it to my experience with this with psychedelics uh-huh. and and that feel oh, yeah. that primal yeah. feeling of of that I am not identifying as a man that I am identifying as something else beyond that. So I, I that's right. that's why I brought that up because I feel that there's a connection there and I and I understand what you're saying. I understood what you were coming from and I, where you're coming from. And I think a lot of people misunderstood that. Yeah, oh, I, yeah, I know. A lot of people did understand it though, and a lot of people. The nice thing about that, I mean, of course, I got a million cavemen yelling at me about being a <laughs> pussy, faggot, cut, idiot, moron for months. I still get like a, some tweet almost every day about that. But I also got hundreds and hundreds of people who either said, "Wow, I never thought about it that way," or, and this, these are my favorites, I got lots of people saying, "Damn, I thought you were an idiot when you started talking, and I still am not at all sure that I agree with you, but you have me thinking about this. I've never thought about this before." And that, that's what I love is when I get people thinking. And I love it when people don't agree with me, but are thinking about what I've been saying. The gender thing that the Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris fuckers, you know, and what they're saying is essentially what it boils down to is that any deviation from gender norms is unnatural. So that, so that the men in the 1950s, like my uncle, who were... 100% homosexual and 100% interested in, in my uncle's case, collecting antiques and going to bathhouses and having sex with 20 year old Filipinos, um, <laughs> that they were doing the natural thing by repressing all of those desires, by dressing in business suits, by being married, by having children, by being acting like heterosexuals because hey that you know acting the way my uncle wanted to act was not like a man that's not what men do and is he that be- is like that because woman. and do you think that that's because that it, they see that as a threat or a condemnation to their lifestyle choices i don't know but it's it's pretty much the fucking most totalitarian right. meanest thing. it's just fucking mean like you know it's I get sure that the trans politics stuff now often goes off the rails and becomes sort of totalitarian in its own way. And it's got, I've got my own problems with it now, but this idea that there's, that your parts, your dick is your destiny is (laughs) just, I mean, that might have to be the title of this episode. (laughs) It's, it's, it's totalitarian. And these guys pretend to be upset about the totalitarians on campuses. No, these are the new, these are, this is a totalitarian reaction to a totalitarianism because look what happened in the fifties, right? When people did deviate from the gender norms, they did lose their careers. They lost their jobs. They often were killed. They were put in prison. They were castrated. Uh, they, you know, I mean, they were literally rounded up. They would, you would go to a bar in Greenwich village, 
you go to the Stonewall Inn in the 1950s or 60s, and every week the fucking cops would pull up and they would pull everyone into a paddy wagon and take them downtown for booking and then report their names to the newspaper. You know, so it's like that's the logical culmination of this idea that I was born a man. Right? I was born a man is the claim that there is a biological, biologically determined destiny for me that that there are things that men this is what rogan said he listed them he started listing them and one of the things he listed was men have sex with women and i said to him you may remember this have you ever heard of the gays right right (laughs) right and he's oh well of course but that's an anomaly i said well yeah it's a very important anomaly isn't it though are they men you know and are they unnatural really is the question are gays unnatural well they are because they have a dick. Well, the dick doesn't go into an anus. It goes into a vagina dummy. So therefore, they are unnatural. Well, once they're unnatural, then what do we do with these people? How do we treat them? How do we think about them? What do we allow them to do? What do we, we not allow them to right, do? Right. We dehumanize them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is just an, a complete assault on freedom. Um, so and it, it could be legal. It could be cultural. If, it ju- if it's just cultural, what you're doing is you're shaming people. Because when you say that you're unnatural for doing this, that, or the other thing, you know, you're saying that they're doing something that's wrong, that's bad. If it's unnatural, it's a bad thing, isn't it? You know, it's um, it's it pisses me off because <laughs> for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that I have always been, <laughs> to some extent, trans, right? I mean, we all are in a way, but like I've always been very aware of it. I'm very masculine in some ways, sort of classically masculine in a lot of ways, but in some important ways, I'm quite feminine. And I think that's why I've always been very attracted to gay men Um, and very attracted. I mean, attracted culturally, attracted to that culture uh, that they they can talk about. They here's one thing. I respect them. Yeah. Well, here's what they do that we're not supposed to do as straight men. They talk about their feelings. Women talk about their feelings. We don't. We can't. We're not supposed to. Um, And that's my podcast. You know, that's what makes my podcast different is that I talk to people about their feelings and I talk about my own feelings. I talk Mm -hmm. about my own feelings in ways that blow people away. If I were a woman or a gay man, it probably wouldn't be as shocking. But because I come off as so straight and so male and so masculine, um, I think it really it's it just it it blows people away that I'm saying things that are so intimate about myself. Yeah. uh, and my own feelings and showing my feelings and, and losing control of my feelings in some, type, some cases. And not just anger, I lose control of sadness on the show, which you don't do. You're not supposed to do as a man. You can lose control of your anger, that's okay. But you can't lose control of your sadness or your pain or your feelings of guilt or shame or all that stuff. Um, so that, I am doing that, that's, that's contrary to gender norms. I am being trans in that moment when I do that. And if you claim that, that, I was born a man. Well, I shouldn't be doing that. Right, right. Yeah. No, according to what we identify, what we say is that, but yeah, I mean, I think that, um, that's a really powerful thing to do. And I, and I, and I do that on this show as well. I mean, I definitely talk about my feelings and, and I think that that is by opening up and by, by communicating in that way, 
I think you're doing uh, you're doing a lot of good because what you're doing is you're 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 letting other people know that it's okay to also have those feelings to think that way. You know, there's so much of I think what you were talking back in the '50s is like that that repression. It's like these people they're walking around. There's there must have been so much fear and anxiety and just psychological trauma inside of them to say I can't open up about this stuff. And once you open up and you start talking and you're vulnerable, it's it gives permission for other people to do that, and that's a courageous and bold act. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, look at pictures of people in the 50s and even early 60s. Everyone literally looks the same. It's almost like the Soviet Union, just with sort of a higher level of income. <laughs> but I mean, it's it's there were three colors of business suit. And that's what everyone wore all day long, even working class people for the most part on the streets. I mean, you know, they wore the same hats. They wore, you know, black or navy blue business suits. And the women had like four or five different kinds of dresses to choose from. And that was it. I mean, they couldn't women couldn't wear pants in the 1950s, you know, I mean, it was really regimented and especially along the gender binary. I mean, there was very firm rules about what a man could do, what he could say, how he could say it, what he could wear, how he could act. And for women too. Um, so anyway, it's like, I don't, this, this, this claim that this stuff is biologically determined just is a complete is completely discredited by history. And more importantly, fuck you, man. Yeah. (laughs) You know, really, fuck you. And I get to do what I want to do. What you're telling me is why I shouldn't do what I want to do. That's that's really what that claim is, right? That's what it is. You're not, you should not do what you want to do. If you want to, if I want to wear a dress, that's what they're saying. They're saying I shouldn't want to do that. I shouldn't do that. I mean, fuck you. Sure. Yeah, you should be allowed yeah. to do that. But you know, and then and then the other side of that is that other people are they don't have to be forced to be happy for you. They don't have to be forced to agree yeah. with you. But as long as you're right. as long as there's no you know laws that are you know really like aggressive uh, attitudes mm-hmm. and actions. I mean, yeah, you should be allowed to exist in the world as you as you are. It uh, reminds me of I think. Uh, there, I forget who said it, but it's like, yeah, you know, there's, there's, there's people out there that are, are happy. Urgh, like, yeah, it just makes me upset. Like they're, they're happy. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, now I will say, I mean, that the Jordan Petersons and Dave Rubens of the world are completely correct that a lot of people in the trans movement are <laughs> their own form of totalitarian. I mean, they, as you were saying, they sort of insist that we say certain things and that we treat them in particular ways and think about think it's not treat them think about them in particular ways so they're they want to police our thoughts as well um and they the worst thing that they're doing and this really makes me crazy because it's completely counter to the beginning of their movement the origin of their movement what made them possible they they're saying often not always but often say that i was born a man or i was born a woman they're actually making a biologically deterministic argument about themselves right that's Caitlyn Jenner's whole thing. I right. was born a woman, and a woman looks like this. I, you know, so they're saying they're just flipping it over, but it's it's still a biologically it's a biological determinism. It's just a, of a different uh, sort, but it's it's that's also totalitarian because what you're saying is, you know, again, your parts are your destiny. The parts just are inside apparently. <laughs> these these people, you know, they can't see them on the outside. I guess I don't know, but it's meaning that it's it's of their nature. It's in their body who they are and they can't, they have no choice. They have no choice. That's Caitlyn Jenner's argument. She has said that I have no choice. I was born a woman. Mm. So it's just the flip side of what Ronan said. Yeah. Ironically, yeah. They agree on, yeah. 
And, and, but the, 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 these, they, they get totalitarian, totalitarian, I think, as reactions to the extremes. And then they, they pop out. They wind up becoming in the same characteristics of the people that they oppose. So it, it kind right. of fails. And, and, and to me, I always scratch my head and wonder, you know, I, I admire kind of like the um, maybe the birth of the revolution of the anti-war movement in the 60s and the, and the civil rights and that sort of stuff. And I, I, I feel as if that we have kind of lost that mentality of uh, live and let live sort of attitude. And I often wonder a lot of times, where where did that go? How come everybody everybody seems that they want to be controlling the levers of power they want to be totalitarians they as long as it's their side as long as they're morally superior their 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 side you know what where, where how do you think that came to be the case yeah. now that everybody seems to be aggressively wanting to seize control because they know it's best yeah well there's an interesting movie a documentary that everyone should watch i've mentioned this i think on my show um, it's called Berkeley in the 60s. It's about my hometown in the decade when I was born. Oh, yeah, um, you were right there. And, yeah. And my mother is actually, she has a brief cameo in the film. You can see her at a, at a sit-in protest at Woolworths, I think, uh, protesting segregation at a department store in Oakland in the 60s. But um, the most important thing about that movie that really opened my eyes, because my parents, so my parents were very much leftists uh, in the 1960s and 70s in Berkeley. and they were they were the political left. They were the ones. They were socialists. Right. They wanted to take control of industry. You know, they industrialized. They took jobs as factory workers to organize the proletariat for revolution. And you know, they were very. They they didn't they didn't really live up to it entirely. But their their ideology was all about discipline because you know workers must be disciplined to have a revolution, to run society, and to have socialism, etc. And so that was the world I lived, I was grew up in, and that was the only left wing I knew, or that was the only part of that culture in the in the Bay Area then that I knew. I mean, I was aware of the hippies, and certainly they were around. And I had, you know, in Berkeley there was all sorts, but the one people I knew intimately were the hardcore politicos, and they hated the hippies Mm -hmm. in San Francisco, in Golden Gate Park, who were smoking weed and just lying in the grass and having sex and going running around naked and just living in the moment for pleasure, you know, seemingly. Um, now, the hippies had their own weird ideologies here and there, but a lot of them, a lot of the hippie movement, a lot of people who were called themselves hippies were really just into, you know, rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Like they were really just into getting high. Yeah, following the Grateful Dead around, taking acid. Yeah, yeah. It, it just, that was most of it. And that's exactly why my parents and their comrades hated them so much. Uh, they because they were seen as not serious, not not serious about politics, not serious about revolution, not serious about responsibility, taking control, managing society, running society, all those things. The movie Berkeley in the Sixties shows that split really well, and it shows that there's very much two different, very two different countercultures in the 1960s that were actually not just different but hostile to one another. The hippies didn't care about the new left in Berkeley, but the new left really hated the hippies because they weren't serious. So there was that moment, as you were saying, when people were just, you know, and by the way, look how the hippies wore their hair. The men, they were the ones who did this. I mean, they were the ones. If you look at the men in the 50s and men in the 60s, the hair is about four times longer. And, yeah. you know, by the end of the 60s and early 70s, like even the president 
uh, like Jimmy Carter had long hair in the 1970s. I mean, compared to the 1950s. Um, and um, that's what women do. So they were, they were bending genders. They were the first ones to really do that and to do it successfully. Yeah. Uh, more, than yeah. The gay, more than gays, by the way, they were hippies were much more responsible for that, for showing men a different way to look that was previously thought of as feminine. that became completely respectable. Um, so the hippies of that sort really are uh, a model. There's a great t-shirt I've seen around. You may have seen it. It just says the hippies were right. <laughs> and, um, yeah, at least those hippies were right. There were hippies who also were about going back to the land and having these communes, you know, farming communes in the wilderness in Oregon and California. And they basically just worked all the time because that's what farmers do. You dipshits and the, you know, and so they were like, we've got to fell trees and then we've got to plant the corn and then we've got to make our clothes. And it was just, it sucked. And they were just like <laughs> these Puritan pilgrims or something. But yeah. The hippies in San Francisco were mostly libertines. Right. They were mostly about displeasure and about, and about just not just questioning these boundaries and these rules about how to live, but just violating them, just doing things differently. So they wore their hair longer. And then next thing you know, everyone else was wearing their hair longer and they wore bell bottom jeans and everyone else. And they wore jeans. That was another thing. They, the hippies were primarily responsible for that. No one wore jeans except if you were working in a, in a logging camp before the 1960s or a coal mine. That was, that, they were completely work apparel. After the 1960s, uh, the, the hippies started wearing jeans and everyone started wearing jeans. And that sort of also loosened this public-private split. So now we can wear jeans in public. We can even wear jeans as we're being public figures. It just loosened all the restrictions around being a public person and what it meant to be an American. So, you know, I actually gave them short shrift in my book. I should have done more on yeah, them. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that was a, when, like last chapter or something, right? Yeah. yeah. I just talked about the commune hippies and how they kind of um, uh, destroy, or, um, I don't know, they, they contradicted their own ideas about freedom. But I didn't, I should have talked much more about these hippies that I'm talking about now. The yeah. ones who lived for really themselves their own pleasures and who who um just violated these rules of polite society so yeah what what this this country was founded on oh well not to mention they also founded the psychedelic culture yeah yeah <laughs> that you are that you are benefiting from now i mean that's they are your uh ancestors right? yeah definitely i mean i i think yeah. that they've they've done a lot of things and i think they've managed to kind of like also integrate into the capitalist culture and produce things like, you know, I mean, Steve Jobs talks about dropping acid and it was the greatest thing that he's ever done. And then boom, you have the, you know, the invention of, uh, of the Mac and, and all these wonderful gadgets and things that we have today. So, you know, but then again, then you have people say, well, you know, he turned evil, you know, he became evil. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't think he was evil. I mean, I don't know. I, I think it's just the the nature of the world that we live in. Things are very complex. If there's anything that we can uh, gather from this this podcast, and I know we're a little over, do you have a little bit more time, or do you got to go? Yeah, you do a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. I mean, you know, so it's 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 like you know, we we want to put these. We want to really, like you said before, you said we want to have the villains so we can be the heroes, you know, and, and smash these people. But uh, but it's it's more complex than that, right? I mean, it's it's we live in a really crazily complex world that we can't even begin to fathom. Uh, the 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 events have influenced other events, and uh, you know, good, bad, it all happens, 
And who's to say, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example. Like oftentimes people will say things like, and, and I, I've definitely been guilty of this myself too. Like, you know, if it wasn't for the state, you know, if we just abolish the state, then, then everything would be good. You know, then we would have a much better world and we can have a better chance and things like that. And it's, you know, these, these fucks in power, these, they're manipulating, they're controlling, you know, the de- but isn't that kind of like, isn't it us? Isn't this part of our story as, hu- as humanity? I mean, isn't this kind of our, our, you know, dare I say, collective, uh, 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 you know, path here to kind of figure all this stuff stuff out as we move along and and try and perfect the best way to kind of live and 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 be. Oh well, I don't know. I mean, if you mean, I thought you meant that that we chose the state. Well, yeah. yeah I, well, what I'm saying is that it's like you know, I th- oftentimes I get an argument. I get the like the the state is almost like an inevitable from humanity like i i i tend to think that like i tend to think that if if people were uh educated a little bit more like i tend to think that if people were a little bit educated as to you know knowing what this power structure that we call the state actually is then 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 we can kind of uh you know start to uh, abolish it you know that we could start to live without it but 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 yeah, like I'm, I, I think that it's our perception of this perceived mag- magical, mystical thing that we call authority. You know, this this kind of thing that we give power to, that we give rights to, that no one, no individual we believe should possess, but it's okay for the state to possess. But it, it, it's it's you know I'm trying to articulate this in a in a in a, in a proper way. But it's like that has that almost is an inevitable from being a human being. Like, I don't know if that's, is there something that we can do to prevent that? Is there some kind of way? I mean, what do we do? Dose all of, uh, you know, the popular, I know Timothy Leary wanted to do that. He wanted to wake everybody up and tune in, turn on, drop out, everybody take acid. I mean, I think, I think, yeah, sure. But what are the chances that's going to happen? Yeah. So it's funny, you know, who said something similar to you about the state being an inevitable part of the historical process and that it would eventually wither away. Oh boy! You know who said that? Who? Karl Marx. <laughs> yeah, he did, didn't he? He said that, uh, that yeah. it was stages of uh, ca- the next stage was capitalism, and then after that, it would eventually erode. Right? Wither away was the phrase. Wither yeah, away. Were, you know, the the workers would take control. The state would be built by the bourgeois, the capitalist class, and then the workers would have a revolution and take over the state. But then, once they took over the state, they would realize that they. I don't know if they realize, but they would just sort of begin to, I don't know, this, this is when it becomes mystical. <laughs> they would begin to, for whatever reasons, uh, slowly dismantle the state because it's not necessary for human flourishing. And so it would ultimately wither away and cease to exist. And then we would live in a pure communism. And he didn't really elaborate on this, but it was it's at the end of the Communist Manifesto, and it's sort of mentioned elsewhere in his work. But we would live in pure communism where everyone is taken care of and everyone works for the greater good, but they don't work. They work less than they did under capitalism and there is peace and tranquility and plenty. So, so yeah. So well, yeah. Well, come on. Well, hold on a second. No, I'm not going <laughs> to let you get away with saying that I'm a Marxist because I think that because I don't believe in that utopian vision. I don't think that I, my ultimate my ultimate vision would be this. And if there's anything that I communicate and advocate for this show, it's that for everybody have the has the right to to liberty. Uh, everybody should have the right to direct experience, and everybody should you know be able to. Uh, have have that without having anyone else infringe on them and 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 you know that that kind of uh i i would call it morality 
you know, I would call that a kind of decency or respect for the individual, respect and honoring of of the individual and the individual's rights. And I would think that, you know, uh, that if we could somehow um, get or maybe encourage people to take psychedelic drugs and and re- and and realize that they have a choice that they don't have to live they don't that, that, that this thing that we call authority is not actually real that we can actually choose to live our lives ourselves and we can live in freedom then the ultimate goal of that would be to secede to for yeah. for for us to go our separate ways and live in peace and and not in total peace but to go our separate ways and to live and let live yeah yeah i like that so that's why this is why you should not use words like inevitable you know this idea you have about the state being inevitable yeah well, I know I didn't say that it was. I said that some people think that it's inevitable. That it's an inevitable. Oh, I yeah. Saying that it, I thought you were saying that it was. I forgot the words you used. But oh yeah, no. Like, yeah, I said. It, I, it sounded like a determinism, right? That it's no. Just a part of, yeah, yeah. No. So I, I, I was thinking. I was of human beings. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Well, no. Okay, I, I, right. So, like, I guess maybe clarify that. Well, like, what I was saying was that I said that I think some people are would argue that uh, that it, it's an inevitable outcome for for the pro, for the history of human beings and and I have a hard time because uh, I would say no but then I have a hard time understanding because then because we're here now we have the state and we have belief in the state we have belief in okay, authority so, yeah okay so here's the here's the thing so you're not a Marxist you're a Leninist <laughs> oh shit <laughs> so this was the big split in Marxism and it's actually it's actually interesting and it's instructive and if you you are completely reminding me of this now so Marx said right it's all sort of planned out in advance like he's a he was a complete determinist right there were there were these inevitable phases of history that we would go through there'd be bourgeois or there was agrarian primitivism bourgeois accumulation when all the factories were built and then there was a socialist revolution when the workers took over and then the withering away of the state and then pure communism at the end of it right and he sort of said this is just going to happen no matter what people do and even though he was about organizing parties and unions and all these things and being an activist he basically was saying at least this is the way most people read him, that it, this stuff would just play out sort of no matter what we chose to do. Um, then Lenin comes along and he lives, and fortunately he's a Marxist, and he lives in this backward-ass primitive peasant country called Russia, which hadn't gone through the first two stages yet. <laughs> but he wanted a revolution right now, so he was like, fuck it, I'm just going to say that we can have a revolution right now, regardless of what Marx said, that nothing's, nothing is determined. Our, our status, our economic place in the world is not our destiny. We can make socialism happen and even pure communism happen right now. And so that strain of thought in Marxism was called uh, volunteerism mm. because they argued that we, we can voluntarily change history. We don't have to wait for history to change for us, which is what Marx's ideas were pretty much. So guess what they did? You know, not, they kind of made a, a bad move there in the particular choice of changing history. They had a revolution in Russia, yeah. which you know did no, no, no one any good. But um, but there's something. There was something kind of nice about that, at least. You know, I just I I I hate determinism of all kinds because again, it's just it just tells you you can't you can't change anything. And what I know you're not saying this. You you are a voluntarist in that sense, not a Marxist. Yeah, I'm, 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 yeah, I'm a voluntarist, uh, Rothbardian anarchist. Yeah, uh, we can change right now, and we can make radical changes right now, and I believe that, no doubt about it. Um, yeah, uh, so 
yeah, everyone should do more drugs. <laughs> oh, that's obvious. I mean, do I even have to say that? I mean, fuck, I mean, look, weed, just weed. If if imagine if all the people in America who drink alcohol changed to weed today. Yeah. That'd be great. Can you Oh my, I mean, the violent the the reduction in violence, mm-hmm. the um we we would sleep better and oh, yeah. therefore be better rest. I mean, because Americans don't sleep enough because they work so much. They would have a much better balance, I think, between work and leisure in their lives. Um, their sex would be better. They would be less angry. They would be less depressed. Oh man, it would be it would be amazing. amazing. Yeah, just so, we right just totally. We. So so yeah. as we're as we're wrapping up the, the the convo towards the end here, let's let's end it on something big then and grand. So yeah. what is driving all of this? What is why can't we do that? Why can't we you know have this happen? There's all the science is out there, the information's out there, the internet has has decentralized information. You know, is is it is is it dare I say again inevitable that this might might happen or is is like but where where is this coming from where is this preventing how why are we being prevented from from starting this kind of quote unquote revolution and what do you mean why it is happening it is happening there you go okay so fine so it is happening although it's it's happening at more it's at at kind of uh it's not really happening at a mainstream level it's happening at an underground level and then that's the that's the argument of your of your book renegade's guide to yeah, right? Like on the for the people on the fringes. What do you mean it's not happening at a mainstream level? What have the states done in the last three years? The states of the United States, they've legalized marijuana. Yes, I mean, a few of them. No, I think it's most now. Okay, well, but, uh, let, me refra- let, let me rephrase a little bit, I guess. It's, it's many, I know that. If you, I mean, look, in, <laughs> you cannot walk down the street in LA without smoking, without smelling. Sure. Weed. I mean, it's yeah. Oregon, it's recreational weed weed is legal in Oregon uh, and California. And I think in Massachusetts, in Colorado, I mean, yeah. yeah, Colorado, Washington, big states, big populations, you know, this that's is, like five this states. Ha- well, but those are huge population centers. So if you look at the population and it's other states too, but if you look at the population uh, that is now living with legal marijuana, it's, it's a massive portion of the American population as a whole. Clearly it's being mainstreamed. There's no doubt about that. I mean, you, this is, you know, there's no doubt. I mean, it's people are, people are think about marijuana completely differently now at all levels of our society. So that's true. Jeff Sessions, you're right. Yeah. Jeff Sessions, when he started talking about uh, yeah. <laughs> going after the state, primitive we, savage, I, I laughed. I wasn't angry at all. I was like, good luck, fool. Like, you will have no chance at all. Like, he is such a dinosaur, even within his own party, even, with the, even among Republicans, even among Christian conservatives. I think most of them now are for legalizing marijuana. Yeah, yeah, Polk. yeah. The shit that he says so, about marijuana is equivalent to being like a flat earther. It's uh, absurd. I want him to do that because all it does is it just it just uh, hastens our ultimate victory, you know. Because he all he's doing is setting himself up for this massive defeat. I mean, please do try to to crack down on Los Angeles dispensaries. Good Jeff Sessions cracking down on California weed dispensaries now. And you think who do you think is going to win that? I mean, it's going to be such a crushing defeat for him. And for that whole idea, that'll be like the final straw and we'll break through and then legalization will be everywhere. He's just going to bring on the complete legalization and mainstreaming of weed faster. <laughs> and so God bless you, Jeff. But, that, but my point here is that it's that he is seen by most people as a complete dinosaur. 
Yes. Okay. So great. So, so then, then, yeah, you answered my question. Then, so, so basically, what you're saying is that the these archaic dinosaurs with their backwards regressive ideologies, they're the ones that are actually going to bring it on faster and expedite the process from being the from living in the in this kind of weird untruth reality that they still live in. And yeah, because they because they create this glaring contradiction. Right? Yeah, they make this complete contradiction. What they say so clearly contradicts the actual experiences of most people that that's usually what causes laws to be changed. Uh, is when people they see that, that there's the, the what the politician is saying has there's no resemblance to my experience. Then you'll see laws change, and that's exactly what happened with weed. People were not dying from weed. People were not becoming addicted. People were not losing their jobs. People were not, you know, breaking up their marriages. People were not suffering in all these ways. They weren't becoming heroin addicts the, a month later after smoking their first joint. Um, they were actually happier. They were sleeping better. They were, you know, all these. So it, it just made no sense. The anti-weed people. And by, so this is only like, by the way, like a 50-year or 60-year process. I mean, weed wasn't really, weed laws, marijuana laws weren't really enforced until about the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Harry Anslinger. 60s, yeah, 60, 70 years. I mean, this is a, this is a little blip in history. So we, we went through that so quickly, which, by the way, coincides almost exactly with the, the Soviet Union, the, the life of the Soviet Union, by the way. Um, you know, that tells you that we're moving really fast, actually. So is that, the, slow, is that the lifespan? Slow. That's the lifespan of, of bad ideas? About, about 70 years, yeah, it looks like it. Uh, so that's that's fast, though, right? We go from, like, complete prohibition, and there are movies everywhere telling us that weed will kill us and make us psychotic, to Massachusetts and California legalizing the recreational use of marijuana, right? I mean, that's, that yeah. is, that's a fast revolution and a really good one. So uh, it is happening. Yeah, that's good. Okay, cool, yeah. You've got to extend it to the other drugs. That's that's the problem. Yeah, so definitely. Yeah, we'll get so basically. So basically, it's just yeah, it's just time. It's time is what it is. Yeah. So then, yeah. then you're an optimist, right? Oh, completely on this. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, I'm uh, uh, generally speaking. Do you consider well, yourself I mean, to be an optimist? Just so, just again, got to look at history. So the last, well, uh, it's mixed. Uh, no, I'm not entirely an optimist. So if you look at the last hundred, two hundred years, you see phenomenal things like. You know, just the wealth of ordinary people has just skyrocketed. You know, the people in sub-Saharan Africa are living way, way, way better than they were 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. And people everywhere are living way, way, way better than they were 100 years ago, materially. Like the poor in the world, the poorest people in the world are rich compared to the poor 50 years ago. And, of course, the middle class and the wealthy, contrary to what a lot of people are saying, all everybody's living far better. We have access to all this information, all the information in the world, to the internet. We have, we have a voice, we can speak, we can have podcasts, we can have blogs, we can, we have our own media, which is now becoming bigger than the traditional mainstream media. You know, it's, it's an entirely new world that is overwhelmingly far better now. And that's all happened in the last 50 to hundred years. Um, but if you look at the last hundred, hundred to 200 years, you also see the biggest, most murderous wars in human history. Right. You know, you see about just in World War One and World War Two, just those two wars. Those wars, people don't know this. Those wars killed about two percent of the entire Earth's population. Two percent of everybody on Earth. 
during those wars died because of those wars. I mean, that's not good uh, at all. And we, of course, have that capability to do that and even worse right now. And I see no reason to not be always very, very nervous about the next world war jumping off. Um, that is kind of my, that's my major cause. That's my primary passion is stopping that from happening because it's underappreciated just what that means. Mm-hmm. And it can absolutely happen really at any time, no matter who's president. Yeah, I kind of had this hope that uh, Trump being president would wake up the left and we would Me get too. get together and sing hand, you know, hold hands and chant anti-war. Um, they don't but care. they don't care. Nobody. It seems yeah, like nobody cares, really. You know, nobody cares. Yeah, no, I know. It's really, really depressing. This is the worst thing about Americans, I think. Yes, I agree. It's, it's partly they're partly not to blame. It's because we have these big oceans on either side of us, right? And of Canada on the top of us and Mexico on the bottom of us, so. No one has really constituted a real threat to us ever, um, and we've never been invaded. We've never felt that. We've never been invaded or colonized since since the revolution. Wait, didn't um, the didn't the Russians invade us in the eighties? Oh wait, no, that was that was Red, Red Dawn. Red never Dawn. mind. Yeah, no, I've never seen that. <laughs> Red Dawn. Yeah, it was like. A, I know what it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, so and then the, the oceans also, and then our material wealth, our relative material wealth made it so that, you know, our physical isolation and our material wealth made it so that we didn't need to study the rest of the world. We didn't need to know about the rest of the world. We didn't, didn't need to worry about the rest of the world or what they might do to us, uh, for the most part, except for the Russians with their missiles. That was the only thing that got the attention of Americans with, was the Russian missiles. And every once in a while, when someone would make up some lie about someone having weapons of mass destruction, or maybe some communists in some little third world country might attack us, but Americans didn't really believe those things, I don't think, anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, but what, the problem is that's made us fucking ignorant. Definitely. <laughs> the rest, I mean, really, really ignorant. Like, it's, it's, it's so depressing. Americans can't identify, most Americans, I think, can't identify Washington, D.C. on a map. I mean, not even like the region. They don't even get close when they pinpoint where Washington, D.C. is on a blank map of the United States. Does that, ang- then, does that anger you? It's just depressing. Yeah. I mean, I'm, not, I'm sort of past anger on that. I'm just sort of, yeah, I've lost, I don't know, I'm just despair. I despair about it. I mean, it's when they call for bombing countries they had not heard of the day before. That pisses me off. Right. You know, Amer- Americans have never heard of Syria. Oh, God. They, yeah. they certainly couldn't identify it. Which is, by the way, this is a great argument against democracy. This is the best argument against democracy. You really want to give those people the power <laughs> to go to war. Um, not, I don't want the president to have the power either, but democracy, well, first of all, the, the president is democratically elected. You know, we did cho- choose him or her. Um, but it, giving the power directly to the people over foreign policy is terrifying, terrifying, because they're idiots. <laughs> generally and I, I you know i and i it's deeply i mean we're talking deep ignorance just geography i mean the way that americans score on geography tests and surveys it's it's shocking i mean they can't even a lot of a lot of americans can't identify europe on a map they couldn't yeah. even show you where is. i mean like a big percentage of americans can't do that that's you really know? sad so, yeah right so they should have no they shouldn't be anywhere near a gun or a tank or an airplane or I mean, they should have no power whatsoever. Right. Think about that, you know? Um, and they're also easily manipulated and, Oh, they're also very moralistic. They see the world through this binary 
bad evil lens, bad bad or evil good lens. And so when they're told that someone's evil, they want to kill them, blow them up, and they don't think twice about it because they don't see the results of it because they live across the globe from right. And then when Iraq. you and yeah, and then when right. I when I when I rant and, and rave about things like, well, Assad's the only secular dictator in the region, and we've been supporting the rebels on the ground, and so you know, blah 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 blah. People are just like, what the hell are you talking about, man? He's evil. He's he's a brown person. We got to kill him. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. But we don't want the people having power over foreign policy either. It's, Definitely not. I just don't want any. I don't want anyone. <laughs> I don't want there to be foreign policy. That's that's what I want. I want the elimination of foreign policy. Yes. I don't want the state doing anything in foreign policy at all. So Agreed. Bring the troops home, so, close up the bases, get rid of it. So am I optimistic? Yeah, I'm optimistic that we're going to have some amazing, astonishing event inventions that will change our lives. We're going to have we're going to have driverless cars, man, probably in my lifetime. That's just that alone is just awesome. Yeah. And you know, who knows what else and I think drugs are going to be legalized. I think most drugs will be legalized in my lifetime. Um and I think we're all going to, I mean, I really mean like all of us will live better materially, even the poor will live materially, you know, forever. Basically, I see no end to that unless, unless we go to war, unless there's some major war and that could happen at any time. So I, I'm optimistic and pessimistic, not pessimistic, but I'm, I'm, I'm very, very worried and I'm not necessarily optimistic about, um, about, uh, peace. In, gotcha. in the world. Yeah. Well, I think you hit the nail right on the head there. And I think, that, you know, that uh, one of the things that you're doing is, you know, you got a po like, in addition to the books that you write and the essays that you write and the Renegade University now that you're starting, I mean, you're really starting an education revolution. You know, the podcast mm -hmm. that you do is absolutely phenomenal, unregistered with Thaddeus Russell. And so I think that, you know, this is, uh, you know, taking hold of this kind of, uh, you know, this wonderful thing that we have, the internet that's, uh, you know, decentralizing information and making it available to all kinds of people all over the world. And, you know, when those ideas spread and, and, and you're provoking thought, uh, you're doing your part to, to be, uh, to make the world a better place. So thank you, Thaddeus so. Russell. Thanks for being on my show. And, uh, it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you, man. I, I could go on for hours and hours with you, buddy. Thanks, Mike. It was a blast. Appreciate thank you. It. You got it. You know what to do. If you love this show, share it, like it, spread it with your friends, tell a friend, tell a family member, tell a neighbor, tell a coworker. And uh, if you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash Mike Brank. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. Or you can go on iTunes and leave me a nice five-star rating and review. Whatever you do, thank you for listening. Much love to you all. Peace. Peace.